what's happened. Got a shower and my nose fell out. Let's have a look. I was booing myself. <laughs> <laughs> Poo was coming out of every hole in my body, <laughs> like liquid. Well, three times well, it's totally clean. She's done. This course is running. I'm on my way. So I kicked cancer's ass in the last three weeks. I barely knocked it over. Hi, I'm Becky. Thanks for tuning in and listening to After, a podcast about looking, learning, and living life after. You join me for episode three today, where I'll be talking about my husband Chris's diagnosis with Ewing's sarcoma. It's been a little while since you've heard from me and that's because I was struck down with this cold that seems to be affecting everybody and my voice has disappeared and it's still a bit croaky today so I do apologise, I hope we can get through this together. I'm not really a winter person, I don't think I make it a secret, I'm very vocal about it. It's been for as long as I can remember really. Well as an adult anyway, when you're a kid it's different this time of year isn't it? I've always struggled with the cold and dark nights. I think the darkness is the worst bit. Going to work in the dark, getting back in the dark, the weather being rubbish. Just makes me feel really tired and fed up. I also find the run up to Christmas quite stressful. I'm not one of these people that's very organised. I'm always a bit last minute. I struggle to think of things. And I'm a bit bar humbug if I'm honest. Yeah, a bit grinchy. Since Chris died, all of those feelings are heightened. Actually, the first Christmas without Chris wasn't so bad, which is a weird thing to say. I think I managed to get through the Christmas period fairly well. I don't remember it being, like, overly hard, too difficult. I could have just been on autopilot, though. Most of what I felt, apart from devastated after Chris died, um, was just numb. Just really numb. By the time it got to Christmas, I think everything was still quite unbelievable. There was also this element of trying to make it still a brilliant Christmas for the kids. To show them that we could still enjoy Christmas, even though Daddy wasn't with us anymore. Last year was a completely different story. It was just awful. I wasn't in a very good place at all. I was very down. None of my usual coping techniques were working. I just hated everything and everyone. <laughs> I hated everything and everyone. And ev- anything to do with the whole Christmas period. I was just really, really miserable. I proper threw my um, dummy out of the pram as well and refused to... Um, decorations up, didn't put a tree up, well I put the kids vomit tree up, but I didn't put any other decorations up, I turned the outside lights on which I, I broke this year, I've not had a chance to replace them, so we're, we are that house on the street with no Christmas lights. There's also a lot of negative memories from around this time of year as well, because it was in um, November, December, well December, that Chris was di- finally diagnosed with cancer. I did touch on his diagnosis in the first podcast episode. I just wanted to take the opportunity to talk in a bit more detail about how the diagnosis came about and about my initial thoughts and feelings. And I'm going to do my best to remember things. Um, it's a bit blurry now. Some things do stick in your mind. There's no nothing going away from some things. It was four. It was four years ago, back in 2015, and I've had a little sleep since then. And obviously it is from how I felt. I can't speak for Chris. I can tell you how I thought he reacted, but obviously I I can't speak for him. So like I did touch on in the first episode, it was the January or February of 2015. Chris played a game of rugby um, and he hurt his ankle. 
he was always picking up an injury or other. So he got very little to no sympathy from me. And it was usually fine after a couple of days. He'd usually just like, um, not sleep it off, but I don't know. It was usually better after a couple of days. This time though, he was hobbling and complaining about it hurting for longer than usual. And, and unusually for him, he decided to take himself off to get it x-rayed. There's many a times where I've forced him to go and get something x-rayed because I thought it might be broken and it turned out that it was in the end. He had it x-rayed and there was the x-ray showed that there was nothing broken. So he was told that there was nothing broken and he'd just have to go home, rest it as much as possible. And the pain just didn't go away after that at all. And as the year went on, his ankle would sometimes swell up. It was always a bit swollen, but sometimes it'd be really, really swollen. And sometimes it would hurt him more than it had been doing. I remember there was occasions where he actually couldn't put socks on because the pain was that bad. And putting socks on made it much worse. It was always worse at night as well. It would keep him up at night sometimes and awake or wake him up early morning. And he wouldn't be able to put weight on it quite often in the mornings. And there were some mornings he'd have to go downstairs on his bum because he just couldn't put any weight on it. He knew something wasn't right, so he went to his GP. Who at first told him the same thing that the hospital said, um, that he just needed to rest it. But after the second or third time of him going with the same issue, because the swelling wasn't going down and he was still in pain, he was finally diagnosed with having gout. And at the time, that kind of fit. It seemed to fit what was going on. Because although the pain was there all the time and his ankle was swollen all the time, sometimes it would be more swollen. And um, Looking back now, I can't even believe that it was possible for it to get more, more swollen than it was. So he just carried on, carried on as normal, doing not what he'd always been doing, still playing rugby, still working. He drove a van. He actually did a charity bike ride and a swim for Manchester's Children's Hospital in the June of that year. And at the time, I remember him actually saying, oh, my ankle's really sore, my gout's playing up. And looking back now, it was actually a really big tumour. He was back and forth to the doctors who tried different gout medicines and painkillers and nothing would get rid of it. And actually, I think that he did take himself back to the hospital at one point because um, he, knew, he knew that there was something more serious. And I think that they said a very similar thing because nothing had changed since the previous x-ray and there was no break in the previous x-ray, that um, he, he just needed to rest it and that it would heal by itself. And in this time, I literally, I had no sympathy because for gout, it was like diet, drink. And his diet wasn't that bad, really. And he, had, he liked the odd drink, but he wasn't drinking to excess, essentially. So he got, little, he got all through this whole period, very, very little sympathy from me because he kept doing what he'd always been doing. So I was, in my mind, I was like, the pain can't be that bad. But really now, thinking about it, it must have been horrendous for him to not even be able to walk down the stairs some mornings. It got to maybe the August or September and he started to feel a little lump in, in within the swelling. So through the swelling, you could feel this little, and it was probably a bit marifat pea size, you know, like not just, not small pea, but big pea size. So he went back to the doctors and the doctor finally referred him for a scan. And I remember the referral to the scan saying that they thought it was something to do with gout, because apparently in gout you can get these little um, solid, solid crystallite, I don't know, the ins and outs of gout, but apparently they can get these sort of lumps in gout. So the doctor referred him for a scan to see if this was all part of the gout. So this scan was arranged for the October and he went for the scan and he went by himself. And after a few minutes, the sonographer actually turned to him and said that whatever you've been told that this could be, it definitely isn't. 
and that what he can feel is just like the tip of what actually he thinks it could be. And at that point, your mind kind of goes into an override, like, what do you mean it's just the tip? What can they actually, what they insinuating that it could be? But I still didn't think it would be anything really serious. That scan was the catalyst for just appointment after appointment after appointment every week, week and a half at the most. He was sent for an MRI the following week. And the week after, he was back at the GP's um, to get the results. And because I didn't think it was anything serious, he went to the doctors by himself. And I went to work, I went into the office. And it was there he was told at the GP's office that it was a tumour. This is just my opinion, but his doctor has zero people skills, zero. So he was given this half bumbling half explanation with no eye contact the doctor was just looking down at his notes um just kind of like no real explanation of what was going on or what it could be or what the next steps were and he was like given this like brief information and then taking him and then sent on his way i remember him ringing me and i had to like leave the office to take the call to tell me that it was a tumor and i just couldn't believe it that it was that i'd let him go by himself and that that it could be something really serious. I was allowed to go home. And I, even even then on the train home, I was trying to convince myself that it wasn't the worst thing. Like, although they say tumour, that it, there's tumours that aren't cancerous. And I, I just, my brain wouldn't let it go to what, to the worst thing that it could be. By the time I got home, the shock, it, it turned to anger. And I was just so furious. I was angry at the doctor for not taking his pain seriously over the months that he'd been going to him and, and, and for letting it get to this point where it could be something really serious. I was, was furious for the way that he'd made Chris feel at the appointment. Really, really just I'm furious and frustrated with myself for letting him go to the, point, to the appointment by himself. I was, it, shock had gone to anger and I was at this like really angry stage of like, how on earth has it got to this point? He was then referred to Manchester Royal for a soft tissue biopsy. And the week after, we had an appointment to see a consultant at Manchester Royal again for the results of that biopsy. In the meantime, I'm still trying not to believe that this is real. I mean, I don't know if I was trying not to believe or if my brain just could not compute that this could actually be cancer, that we were going to be affected by cancer. Chris, I think, knew. He knew from the off. He knew his own body, he'd known for months that there was something wrong and that it wasn't just gout. He kept telling me it wasn't just gout and it was something else. But he was told by the doctor that that's all it was and treated for that. And Chris felt like he'd been fobbed off for the best part of 12 months. After the initial GP appointment, I went with him to all the other appointments he went to. So I went with him to the, bio the appointment for the biopsy results. And we sat in the waiting room at this department, I can't remember which department it was, and there was posters about Macmillan and sarcomas on the wall. And I, and even then I'm sat there and I'm thinking, wow, some people come here and they have really serious problems, but it can't be something that's not going to be us. That's, that's not for us, those sort of posters. And the consultant broke the news then that the biopsy had shown that um, Chris did have cancer and the cancer was Ewing sarcoma. And he explained that it was a form of bone cancer uh, he also explained how rare it was, how, how there's different, how it can be very aggressive. And he explained how there's only five hospitals where there are consultants who specialise in that particular cancer. Um, and so he'd have to be referred from Manchester Royal to Oswestry. 
and Oswestry Street um, work in hand with the Christie. So Oswestry Street treat the bones and then um, the Christie do the chemotherapy and cancer treatment. From then, he explained how serious it was, how grueling the treatment was going to be for this particular cancer. And it was then we found out that it would be likely that Chris would have to have his leg amputated. Well, not likely. He was like, no, the leg will have to be amputated. You're definitely going to lose that leg. I remember Chris saying, oh, well, if it's in my leg, I'll, I should be okay. And they were like, no, it doesn't work like that. Um, it could be, it's, it's really quite serious. And I felt really bad. I just, I felt sick to my stomach because a few weeks before, when we weren't sure what it was, I'd been joking about him having to have his leg removed. Like, what if it's so serious that that you've got to have your leg amputated? Never believe him. Well, I, I didn't understand that cancer could affect bones in that way and could you'd have to have legs amputated. I obviously knew that you'd, some people had um, surgery, but in my mind, I'd never really heard of a cancer where you'd have to have parts of your body amputated. Uh, yeah, you're hearing all this information and your brain just... Can't, it can't compute that it's happening. It's trying to take it in. And it's just like, going, no, this is unbelievable. I think my brain did that most of the time throughout the whole, whole over the past four years, basically. Chris went for, we went from that um, consultant straight round so Chris could have a chest x-ray. And the purpose of the chest x-ray was to check whether the cancer had spread to his lungs because that was the second place that it was going to go after the primary source if it had spread, which would obviously have made it terminal at that point, I think. And I remember thinking, he's fucked. <laughs> it's actually, this is ridiculous, because this has been going on for 10 months. And you hear and you see and you read about catching cancers early and with the first sign of symptoms to make sure you get to a doctor. And he'd been in pain with his leg for 10 months. And I just thought, there's not a chance this hasn't already spread it's it can't be possible you've you hear horror stories of people well it, it was a horror story but in my mind i'm playing other horror stories of people who are feeling a bit unwell and going cancers all over and i'm like he's had this in his leg for 10 months already i turned into a swan at that point i was a mass of panic and emotions on the inside but on the outside i was really ma really matter of fact really calm very i don't know stoic my brain wouldn't believe that this was actually happening but my heart knew my heart I just felt sick but I just felt like I needed to try and hold it all together because I know that whatever I was feeling this would have been much much worse for Chris to even try and get his head round I was just in shock I think yeah definitely shock my, my brain and it was just really confusing how I felt and how I was thinking we decided not to tell Lily about what was happening until we knew completely what was going on. So I honestly can't remember what happened when we got home. So much is so vivid in my mind, like so clear as if it was just yesterday. But then some other stuff has just gone. I can't remember how we reacted when we got home, where we said we'd been, what we did or anything like that. I, I remember that we were due to get a new bed delivered the next day. So we were bedless. Um, Lily and Chris had planned a little sleepover in her room. They did that every so often because she had like a pull-out trundle bed. And Sam was still in his cot at the time. So I was supposed to be sleeping on the sofa. And I'd, come bedtime, what happened before bedtime, I've no idea. Come bedtime, I just couldn't sleep. I lay on the sofa most of the night. 
Um, don't remember getting much sleep at all. Uh, whilst I was on the sofa, I did that fatal mistake of Googling the cancer, which is just, just don't, just don't do it. I was looking for statistics. I was looking for good news stories, um, just trying to understand what was actually happening. And there just wasn't many, to be honest. It was just very few and far between. I think I found one website of someone who'd had a similar thing, who'd had a reoccurrence, who was still alive, but it was just not, it wasn't the statistics that I was looking for. And it certainly didn't help me try and get to sleep at all. It just made me more awake. I ended up um, leaving the sofa and going lying on the floor next to Sam's cot. Um, it was in our room still. I, just because I felt like I needed to be closer to everybody. And downstairs, I was just there was just too much distance. It sounds, it sounds crazy. We're in the same house. I felt like by laying on the floor next to Sam's cot, that I was closer to us, just trying to hold us all together still. Still didn't sleep. I felt really sick, really nauseous all night. And I just kept replaying everything that we'd heard over and over again. Everything that the doctor had said, everything that I'd read was just playing on my mind. It was quickly referred to Oswestry. And like I said, they worked with the Christie. It was maybe a week and a half later. Um, you learn it's not as simple as getting the next appointment that's available. And that these sort of cases or cancer cases are referred to consultants and then they like hold like a weekly meeting. Well, this this in particular was a weekly meeting. And that was there was like a plan brought up then of what was going to happen. An appointment can only come after that meeting has taken place and after you've been dis discussed, basically. Chris had agreed with the original consultant that he was going to get, he wanted the results for the chest x-ray over the phone. He didn't want to have to wait to receive that. He wanted any results that came through at any point to know as soon as possible. When we got that call a few days later, when Chris got that call a few days later, and he, he was told that his lungs were clear, there was no no sign of any disease in his lungs. So it was just in his, in his leg. And I, I burst into tears. I cried. I sobbed, proper sobbed. It was a big like fat cry ugly cry um and it was the first time i'd cried about it about the whole situation and it was with relief it wasn't because i was upset it was because i was relieved because at that point i knew it hadn't spread i thought this is it he's got a shot he's got a shot that he's going to beat this because it's not spread after 10 months so from, i was just overjoyed at the thought I was just overjoyed because I knew we had a real chance of fighting it and beating it. We went to the appointment at Oswestry and we met the Ewing specialist. And he was one of the guys that sat on the Ewing's board. Um, there's so few cases a year, I think 75 a year when Chris was first diagnosed. That each one is discussed at a national board level. He was one of the top consultants regarding this sort of cancer. And he was a really, really nice guy. Really nice guy. Really reassuring. He said he was confused because although the soft tissue biopsy said Ewing's, confirmed Ewing's, the cancer wasn't behaving like Ewing's sarcoma usually behaves. You have to understand that Chris was well, like really well. He didn't look unwell. He didn't feel unwell. He was fit and healthy and still like going to the gym and doing sport and things at that point. He was fit and healthy at that point. Still happy to have a few beers, but his, like I said before, his lifestyle wasn't really excessive. The only thing was the pain and swelling in his ankle. I can remember the consultant actually saying that he couldn't believe that he'd managed to do so much exercise without the bones snapping. And then that would obviously have been really serious. And he couldn't believe how well Crystal looked. So 
So he's fit and healthy. He was outside the usual demographic. Ewing's usually occurs in children and, ad- and adolescents, um, you know, people with fast-growing bones. It had started in one of the smaller bones, in like in his ankle, and Ewing, Ewing's usually originates in bigger bones like the pelvis or shoulder blades, you know, big bones. He also did have gout, so that diagnosis was not incorrect, but the gout was caused by the by tumour waste, I, th- I think, if I'm remembering that right. It wasn't gout by itself, but that was another thing. Ewing's tumours don't usually... One of the symptoms of Ewing's tumour Ewing's tumor is not having gout. He said, he said that everything was just not adding up and that he'd had a discussion with one of the other consultants and they actually thought that it might be a lymphoma rather than Ewing's, so a blood cancer rather than a bone cancer. And he basically said that lymphoma was the better diagnosis. It was easier to treat, the survival and recurrence rates were better, and that he would not need to have his leg amputated if it was lymphoma over the Ewing's. And that's because Ewing's, a Ewing's tumour grows through the bone, making it like a sponge, and that bone would never heal, never grow back. Whereas with the lymphoma, it grows around the bone and it doesn't destroy it. So it's basically, that, that, was, that would be basically why, if it was lymphoma, he wouldn't have had to have his leg amputated. This is obviously what I remember from the meeting and being told I'm not a medical expert in either of these cancers, although I do know more about how Ewing's works and how Ewing's is treated. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a medical expert. He wanted to confirm the Ewing's um, diagnosis. So he wanted to have a bone biopsy done and then he wanted to have those results scrutinised and discussed at this Ewing's panel by one of the people on the Ewing's panel. So um, it was like the top people who were dealing with it. And we actually left with a bit of hope that this might, although it's going to be bad, it's, it's definitely a cancer. But if it's the lymphoma, this is a much better scenario than it being the Ewing sarcoma. And it might not be as bad as it could be. We were almost, we were almost positive. We was like, pray for lymphoma, basically. Pray for a cancer that is less likely to kill you. And that's what we kept. It was just a really strange thing to say. We're hoping that it's this other cancer rather than hoping that it's not cancer at all because we knew that by now we were hoping it was the lesser of the two evils although all cancer is evil but the more treatable version the bone biopsy was then booked uh, and then after the bone biopsy chris got an appointment to go back to oswestry for the results of that and the uh, appointment date was the 20 24th of december christmas eve 2015 so in the midst of trying to prepare for Christmas, doing nice, lazy family things, planning Christmas Eve, we had to head back up to the hospital in Oswestry. And it's about an hour and it's over an hour's drive. So it was a big chunk of our Christmas Eve taken up. And I went wearing like a Christmas jumper. It was Christmas Eve after all. And it said Merry and, ba- Merry and Bright on the front in sequins. Because I was feeling really confident that we were going to get the better news. And I, I remember saying to my friends, they're not, they can't possibly give us bad news whilst I'm wearing a top that says Merry and Bright on it. Well, it was bad news. We know it was bad news. The bone biopsy had confirmed the Ewings. It was a definite. The consultant, like I said, he was so nice, really nice. He was almost apologetic. Like, sorry you're going through this. Sorry you're going to have to go through this next um, year because it was a year we knew it was going to take to treat. His whole manner and the way he spoke made us understand that this was this was going to be a fight. This was not going to be easy. 
Chris said afterwards that he felt like he had to try and win him round, win him over, make him want to treat him, make him believe that he had had the fight in him and that he was worth treating. I didn't get that kind of vibe vibe from him, really. I think that was Chris just coming from a place of determination, a place of wanting to survive and wanting to live and wanting to get through the next year. I remember the consultant uh, referring to Chris as a bull, like he had the strength of a bull, and that although it would be a fight, he had every confidence in him, which uh, he might say it to everybody, but it makes you... He made Chris come out of there thinking, right, yeah, I, I can I can do that. He believes that I can do this. I remember at that appointment as well, the consultant showed us a scan of Chris's leg. And oh, my God, that tumour was huge, like massive. You know, I can't even describe it. I might one day ask for them. I don't know if I can get hold of him. I don't know. I might ask for them just, just so I can see them again. Um, it was in his ankle, halfway up his shin. It was actually quite shocking but strangely fascinating at the same time. He also showed us the x-ray Chris first had at the beginning of the year because Chris was um, saying that he was angry that it had been missed. And so he showed us that x-ray and the consultant said that you can see a very slight shadow on the bone, which a specialist in this particular cancer might have noticed, but would have easily been missed by someone not knowing what they were looking for. Because sarcomas are... are really difficult to diagnose, not just Ewing sarcomas. Chris isn't, isn't the only case of it being missed for so long because they're so difficult to diagnose because people don't know what they're looking for. The symptoms can often come across as it being something else. It was only at that point I think we realised how angry we'd still been at the doctor and that the fact that this had been missed for so long. But when it's explained to you properly that this would have been really difficult to diagnose, actually... You feel a bit better about that. Chris had to go straight away for a full body scan. Straight, there was, I remember the hospital being empty because obviously it was Christmas Eve and it was getting quite late on in the afternoon by this point. And I think it was the last scan of the day. And that was to check that there was no other spots of the disease on any other bone. Um, and although Chris hadn't felt any pain, there could have been something niggling somewhere. So that was just to rule out um, the, that the cancer had spread to any, of, any bone anywhere else. I remember sitting in the entrance hall to the hospital and it was quite, it's an impressive hospital. And at the front in the entrance, like the atrium, there was like this little cafe and it did the most amazing homemade cake. Um, it was worth the trip down there just for the cake. And I'm, I'm sat there, like, and there's people leaving for Christmas Eve and the hospital's on, it's like a ghost town. It's the emptiest I've ever, ever saw it. And I'm wearing a bloody merry and bright Christmas jumper feeling like a complete idiot for ever having any hope and for sat there wearing this jumper when we've just heard the worst news we, we could have ever expected. I was just so deflated, just so... That's the only word I can use to describe it, really. I don't even think I felt sad or upset. I felt like all the feelings had been sucked out of me. Like I was a shell of a person, I was empty of any emotion. I'm a, again, my brain is not letting me compute how shitty this all is and not letting me fully understand what the year ahead is going to be. I couldn't actually wear that top after that. I didn't wear it the next year. and It was only the year after Chris died that I wore it just to try and break the kind of curse because every time I even looked at it, I just it took me right back to that day. I just felt sick every time I even saw it 
I did wear it, you know, like I said, I wore it the year after, so 2016. I don't know, maybe not 2016. Maybe the year Chris died is the first time I wore it again. I can't quite remember, but I think I remember wearing it again because I was feeling dead defiant and I was giving it giving it the middle finger, basically. Big F you to everything that we'd gone through. By wearing it again, I kind of took the power away from my negative emotion and my negative memory. Whether that helped or not, I've no idea, but I think that's what I was trying to set out to do when I when I put it back on again. Even though the memories are not going any, anywhere anytime soon, they definitely don't feel as raw this year as they have done previously. I mean, I've had Facebook memories, so I know the exact date of when we went because of Facebook, because something was put on Facebook, and Chris woke up the next morning when he was first told it was Ewing's and put his road bike for sale. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, never riding that again, I might as well sell it. Like, that was the first thing he did in the morning. Yeah, they don't feel as raw this year. And next year, they might feel completely different again. They could be worse again. I think I spent a lot of time in just complete shock. It's one of the worst nightmares. It's one of your worst nightmares coming true. And you, you, your brain doesn't let you navigate that sensibly. It, it just doesn't... Well, mine doesn't. I don't know about anyone else's. My brain doesn't quite work so negatively. So it didn't let me believe that for a long time that this was actually happening. So it kind of put it in a state of shock and just sheer optimism and bloody mindedness. I still worked through that whole period as well. Work were really great and let me work from home. Um, so I was at home all the time throughout all those appointments. I was allowed to take time off to go to the appointments with Chris they were absolutely fantastic and I didn't have a single day off. So it's like I carried on as normal. And if I carried on as, as normal for as long as possible, then, then this would not be our reality at this point. I'm not sure I ever really processed the situation in its complete severity. Still now, to me, it's all very unbelievable. And there's some days I'm like, I can't believe I've, I'm still waking up every morning and living this and surviving this. But I definitely, for a couple, a few days, was on autopilot. Not really present in the situation. I felt like I was like, out, not outside of my own body, but outside of situations. I was constant, my mind was constantly elsewhere. It wasn't able to concentrate or really focus on anything. And I didn't feel anything. And I, I know I've just said that, but everything was just kind of a haze. I couldn't really talk about it. And in the beginning, believe it or not, because here I am talking about it. I didn't want to talk about it. I couldn't talk about it. And I remember I'd arranged to go out for lunch with some of my oldest friends. Um, this was before the biopsy results, but after we knew it was a tumour. So the a cancer wasn't confirmed, but we knew it was something. And I messaged them before we went out and I asked if we could just not talk about it or mention anything ankle related. Because I just really didn't have the energy or mind space to try and explain it. I couldn't explain something I didn't understand myself. And in the beginning, I didn't even want to tell anyone. When we found out that it definitely was cancer and what was happening, I needed the time to process it so I could talk about it. When I eventually could talk about it, it was with a bit more clarity and not in this like brain fog that I all of a sudden found myself in. Chris was completely the opposite at this stage, <laughs> which makes me laugh now because it was like, it's like roles reversals not long afterwards. He wanted, he needed everyone to know. He needed people to know. Whereas I was like, don't tell anyone just yet because we've not figured it out. Because I hadn't figured it out. Not we hadn't figured it out. He needed people to know. He was in a battle and he was in battle mode by that time. 
He had feared the worst for so long, he'd expected it. He knew his own body, he knew that there was something definitely wrong, he knew he was in too much pain, and he, I think he knew it for a long time. I think he'd known it from, for a long time, from the beginning. I think he knew as soon as he'd done his ankle that this wasn't gout and this was something else. But if you're being told that it's not anything serious, you've kind of got to go along with that. Well, you don't have to go along with that. I'm saying that. We kind of went along with that. But really, if, if you feel that there's something wrong, you need to be demanding from your doctor that you that you need referring somewhere or you need further test doing. And that is that is the difference in some cases between survival and not. And because he thought it was something awful from the beginning and he, he knew he's a, he knew he believed it was something awful. It could have just been his pessimism because he was quite pessimistic sometimes. But he was already like ahead of me in thought and coming to terms with things. He'd already kind of come to terms with this is going to be serious. So he's like ready for a fight. Whereas I'm behind because my brain wouldn't let me compute that it would be anything serious. So it took my it took me a little a little bit longer to catch up to fully understand what was happening. Well, that helps really from the beginning, Chris wanting to talk about it straight away. Because straight off the bat, there was just an outpouring of love for Chris from our friends and family. And it really helped because you're like, right, okay, this is going to be a hell year, but we're not going to have to face it alone. We've got support, we've got friends, we've got people who are willing to help. And I think that really helped Chris straight away. He was like, because he understood how much support that he had. For me, it was just complete shock and just in this haze of no emotion. I'm not a big crier. Throughout the future episodes, you'll realise um, I don't cry a lot. So I didn't cry hardly at all, apart from when Chris got the results for his, his lung scan. And I think there was the odd couple of tears on the, like maybe the night that we found out, not the Christmas Eve night, the, when we found out it was cancer. I was just so tired. And it wasn't a cry, it was just like, my eyes were leaking, basically. They, they were leaking and they wouldn't stop leaking. But it, yeah, I wasn't outwardly upset. And I don't know if people thought... I always worried that people were like, well, she's not that upset. Well, I was upset. But my brain wouldn't let me show you that I was upset. I don't even know. I'm waffling now. <laughs> I'm waffling a bit now. Um, yeah, I'm waffling. I think any... There's no way to say you will react in this way or you will react in another way um when you hear this sort of news but what i will say is that any way you react is fine because it's a lot to take in and your brain can't compute what you're hearing because well my well i've said this i've said this so i'm repeating myself but my brain couldn't compute that this was actually happening at all um and it wouldn't let me go to really dark places it instead it just put me in this like foggy haze which i had to try and stay through for a little bit i'm repeating myself and waffling now so i think it's time that we uh that I, that I stop that i just stop waffling there is some things that will come out of this like i've not really talked about um how we told the kids which is something i want to talk about uh, and there is some other things i'm sure that will come up at different points that might refer back to this stage thank you so much for listening i do hope you will join me again for the next episode in the meantime, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Beeks, which is at B-E-E-C-K-Z. I'd love to hear from you if you've got any comments about this episode or any questions about this. Or I'd, And I'd also like to hear from you if there's something you want me to talk about or a subject you'd like me to cover or a question you want to ask, 
about anything to do with my life, with the diagnosis, with the, um, what we went through the treatment, afterwards, anything like that, please do get in touch. I also have a blog which is diaryofafatbottomgirl.com. There's some posts on there I wrote during Chris's treatment and after. There's also posts from this period in 2015, so from the diagnosis and how I was feeling up to that. Just want to thank bensound.com for the use of any music you've heard in this episode. Again, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I really hope you'll join me again next time. See you then.